Try to imagine with me that moment that Jesus first sat down on his throne. He took on flesh. He displayed divine power. He preached good news of the forgiveness of sins. He challenged those who opposed God. He corrected those who were errant in their understanding of God. He defeated sin, death, and the devil. He paved the way for humanity to be brought to their Father. And now, in the heavens, with angels and creatures, and humans in attendance. The coronation of King Jesus takes place. Try to imagine it. It's difficult for me to imagine a king and a ruler that I admire and that I love in their totality. We live in a democracy, having presidents that come and go, and we see many wonderful things and many terrible things in some and in others and probably more often than we want, we see both great and terrible things in the same person. It's hard to envision having a king and it's nearly impossible to envision having a perfect king. But try to imagine with me that moment that Jesus sat down on his throne. Our earthly events of pomp and circumstance don't compare. A royal wedding of the European aristocracy is something to behold, no doubt, but it lacks radiance and glory and genuine accomplishment. The coronation of a king or a queen of England is indeed a magnificent affair. However, the love of the constituents all pale in comparison. And the royal court in all of its dignity is minuscule compared to the throngs of heaven. And the power of a king will be nothing compared to the sovereign might of the Lord and King Jesus. Glimpse, glimpse into heaven with me and imagine the day that Jesus sat down on his throne. Hebrews chapter one gives us a glimpse into that day. And it is a glimpse of the glorious coronation of the risen king. And I want to ask you to follow along as I read it now. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, and you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? They are not all ministering spirits. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Jesus is God's final and complete revelation of himself to the world. And as such, he is superior to all kings, to all priests, and to all spiritual beings, even angels. And this is what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. And the passage can be looked at really from two different perspectives. You could look at this passage from an earthly perspective and say, isn't it absolutely amazing that the eternal king, Jesus, the God-man, took on flesh and lived among us. Or you could look at this from the heavenly perspective, which says Jesus had a divine and cosmic role, and having accomplished that role, he sits on his throne in heaven as ruler and as king. And it's the heavenly perspective that we consider for just a few minutes this morning. There are many different ways the supremacy of Jesus is expressed in this passage and his glory, 12 different ways at least. We consider just three of them. And the first one is that we see in verses one to three that Jesus is crowned Lord of all as he takes his seat on the throne. Jesus is described as the heir, which means he inherits all things. He's described as the one that God used to create all things. And he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's an impressive list. And the fact that the mere words of Jesus uphold the universe is nearly incomprehensible to us. 
Practically, this means that Jesus is the one who sustains life. He sustains physical life, and he sustains spiritual life. And it means if he is the one who upholds all things in the universe merely by the word of his power, then it necessarily means that he is supreme over all things. It means that he is supreme over the rulers of the earth. He is supreme over all royalty. He is supreme over the global economy. And if he is supreme over the global economy, then he is supreme over your personal finances as well. He is supreme over weather and all natural resources. He's supreme over tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes and global warming and global cooling. He is supreme over the oil reserves in Alaska and the Middle East and in Russia. He's supreme over all the things that we do not see and cannot fully comprehend, whether in the physical realm of microbiology, the things that are way, way, way down there or way, way, way up there, or in epidemiology as we try to figure out how to continue to navigate disease that we've never seen before, or in the spiritual realm with spirits and powers and principalities. He is supreme over the internet and television and newspapers and books and all other mediums of communication. He's supreme over knowledge and logic and philosophies of the world. He's supreme over universities and think tanks and centers of contemporary thought. He is supreme over those who recognize him and give their allegiance to him and receive the good gifts that he gives. And he is supreme over those who do not recognize him or have seen glimpses of him but ignore his divinity and he is in heaven and he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high and he upholds the universe by the word of his power that's amazing Niccolo Machiavelli was a Renaissance-era philosopher, politician, and writer, and his writings greatly influenced modern political science. Machiavelli believed that to be an effective political leader, you needed to be ruthless and tyrannical, not empathetic and just. And his book, The Prince, is a short manual of advice for princes on how not to finish last. And the answer was never to be overly devoted to acting nicely and to know how to borrow every single trick employed by the most dastardly, unscrupulous, and nastiest people who have ever lived. Machiavelli knew where our counterproductive obsession with acting nicely originated from. It originated from the West who was brought up on the Christian story of Jesus of Nazareth. He was a very nice man from Galilee who always treated people well. But Machiavelli pointed out that the inconvenient detail of Jesus' life and the sentimental tale of triumph through goodness and meekness was that from a practical perspective, Jesus' life 
was an outright disaster. This gentle soul was trampled upon and humiliated and disregarded and mocked, judged in this lifetime and outside of any divine assistance, he was one of history's greatest losers. But what Machiavelli and so many others after him fail to take account is that the gentle lamb becomes a lion. And after the seeming defeat of the cross, the resurrected Lord Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne where he is crowned in glory and from that throne he will indeed return again in great power and glory to reign among all of humanity in its entirety. He was exalted by the Father because of his willingness to humble himself and take the form of a servant and even to die for those that he served. And now Jesus, the God-man, recognized and crowned by his Father, takes his seat on the throne as the Lord of all. He is crowned after doing something very specific. Look at verse three with me. It says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a short little phrase in the middle of a phenomenal list, but you might be tempted to miss it, but don't. The mission of Jesus was to reveal the glory of God, and he did so in many, many ways, but he did so chiefly through making the purification for sins. Without purification, no one would be able to come to God. We need purification. God cannot and will not abide stain or rot or tarnish. God is perfect and holy in his ways and his character and in his being. He will not abide the sins on the souls of his people for all eternity. And Jesus, in this way, functions as a supreme priest between his Father and the people to make them pure. Now, in the Old Testament, the practice of sacrifices was commonplace to atone for the sins of people and to remove their guilt so they could be restored to God. Priests led these sacrifices. They led them in the Day of Atonement once a year and through sacrifices throughout the course of the year. And the priests were always standing because their work was never finished. More sacrifices need to be made. The sins of people were ever before them and ever before God. But Jesus did what no other priest could do. He was the priest, the only one who offered just one sacrifice. It was perfect in its nature, and because he did once and for all, and it was exact in its purification, he sat down. He didn't need to keep working. 
He didn't need to keep standing. He did not need to keep sacrificing. He sat down because the work of purification of sins on the cross was sufficient and complete in its effect. And there's this temptation that I have and that you have. And the temptation is to think as we go through this life and we reckon with ourselves and our sinful realities that we can somehow pay for ourselves, pay for our own sins, or even purify ourselves by doing enough good things to get into a relationship with God and to get in to heaven. There are two ways the Bible says that you can get into heaven. One plan is to earn it. That's the performance plan. All you have to do is never sin, always do the right thing, always think of the right thoughts, every single moment of every single day until you die. That's all you have to do. Okay, so now none of you apply for that. The better plan, God's plan, is this. That you trust Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That he was the perfect person, the only perfect person, because he was God. So he came so we could know what God was like, and by trusting him and establishing a relationship with him and receiving the forgiveness that he offers, the purification that he gives by That direction you get in, not because of your goodness, but you get in with God in heaven because of his goodness. Imagine with me that my friend Jason took his young son to the carnival one time for his birthday. And his son picked up six boys to go with him along the way. And so when they got there, Jason bought one of those big rolls or big sheets of tickets. And every ride that they came to, tears off seven tickets and hands it to the boys and they hop on the ride. And they go to the next ride and seven tickets and they hop off and they go on the ride. And seven tickets and on down the line. But when they get to the Ferris wheel, there's an eighth boy in the line. Jason says to him as the boy is looking up at him with his hand holding out, who are you? And the kid says, I'm Johnny. Jason said, well, who are you, Johnny? Johnny said, well, I'm your son's new friend. And he said that you were going to give me a ticket. Jason asks, after the fact, what do you think I did? (laughs) Did I give him a ticket? Of course I gave him a ticket because my son invited him to come. Friends, you get to God not through your own effort, not because you hop in the line on yourself, not because of your attempts at goodness or purity, but because the Son invites you, the Son purifies you, the Son brings you to the Father, and when he does, you enter his presence. And for that unique purification of sins, Jesus displays himself as supreme. The third element of Jesus' glory that we consider is that he has a throne that is forever. Look at verses 8 through 13 with me again and try to picture the throne room of heaven. 
But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And down to verse 10, he says, you've laid the foundation of the earth and in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And down to verse 13, of which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? The writer of Hebrews quotes a number of different psalms. He does so to show how, the, how these different psalms find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. He has an everlasting throne. It has been established, which means that his rule will never, ever, ever end. There's no lapses in his rule. There's no pauses in his rule. There are no gaps in his rule. Psalm 110 is quoted in verse 13 regarding the fact that he will sit at his father's right hand and his enemies will be a footstool under his feet. And if the, foot, if the enemies of Jesus are his footstool and you are found in Jesus, what do you think those enemies are to you? <laughs> Jesus is currently ruling in his exalted state from the cross to the grave, to the resurrection, to the ascension, and now seated on the throne. The right hand is the place of honor and the place of power. The prophecies of the Psalms that are applied initially to David have been lingering out there for hundreds of years waiting for their complete and total fulfillment and in King Jesus the fulfillment is found. And that is why the Apostle Paul says some things very encouraging to you and me when he says this. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Or Philippians 2.9 and 10 that says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Or Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so picture the throne room of heaven. Jesus is on his throne, a throne that lasts forever with the scepter of uprighteousness, and he is contending or interceding for you. And he brings us to himself in our final breath. What else can you say that would possibly enliven your souls in the difficulty of this life? He has accomplished all of God's purposes. He is the king over every family. He is the king over every tribe. He is the king over every ruler. He is the king over every nation. And he is the king over you. He is supreme in the fact that he is the inheritor. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the radiator. He's the representor. He's the purifier. He is the ruler. He's superior to the angels in his name, in his honor, in his status, and in his existence. He has conquered death and the devil 
And he does currently rule with a scepter on his throne. And he does this as one who has made purification for sins. And friends, this has so many great benefits for you and for me. This means that you can be purified right now. That the guilt and the stain and the weight that you feel in your life because of the things that you know you have done wrong, that he offers purification for you, forgiveness, cleansing. All you need to do is reach out and take it. This means that if you are his through faith, that Jesus is contending for you right now. And he does so every day through all of the ups and downs of your life. This means that Jesus, as it says in verse 7, has an army of angels who are at his bidding to accomplish his purpose in the world even now. This means that because Jesus is taking hold of his inheritance eternally, that your inheritance in heaven is secure and it will never be ripped away from you. This means that because the victory is already won and the work is already finished, it means that you can live out your days in confidence. No matter what you see going on in this life, you can have confidence of your position with God. And this means that this Lord and Christ, King Jesus, is worthy of our surrender. He's worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our allegiance. And he's even worthy of our lives right now. In his book, Leaving Home, Garrison Keillor tells of a fictional story about a family from Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. Grace Tolufson married Alex Campbell back in the 1930s, and Alex turned out to be a man who was a never-do-well type of guy. They had three kids together, Earl, Marley, and Walter, and one day, Alex left Grace. Penniless, she was forced to move back home to Lake Wobegon to live off the kindness of the folks there and enduring the relentless I told you so's of her mother. It was a humiliating time of life. But one day, she got a letter in the mail from a man in Philadelphia doing some research on Scottish nobility, and he asked who their ancestors were so he could look them up. This was long before Ancestry.com or 23andMe. And so Grace wrote the man back, and a few days later, another letter came in the mail. And though the envelope was addressed to Mrs. Grace Campbell, the letter was addressed, Your Royal Highness. In the letter, the man wrote, Today is the happiest day of my life as I greet my one true sovereign queen. And he went on to say that their branch of the Campbell family was the first in line of succession to the House of Stuart, the royal family of Scotland. And Keeler writes that the line on the chart led 
straight to them. (laughs) Earl, Marley, and Walter, the royal family of Scotland, right there living in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, in a green mobile home with furniture donated by the local Lutheran church. Who would have thunk it? They were astonished beyond words. Disbelieving at first, afraid to put their weight on something so beautiful, afraid it was too good to be true, and then it took hold. This was grace. Pure grace that God had offered them. Not their will, but his. Grace. Here they were in the same dismal place, but everything had changed. They were different people. Their surroundings were the same, but they were different. Years later, the youngest son, Walter, found out that the whole business was a fraud. But he never told his mother or his siblings because thinking you are royalty, whether anyone else knows it or not, changes a person. And at the end of the story, Grace is much older and she says to her son, oh, Walter, what would I do without you? You're so strong. You're so good to me. You're a prince, you know. They can put a crown on a dog and call it a prince, but you are a prince through and through. They may not know it now, but they'll know it soon. Next year we'll be in Edinburgh with the bands playing and the flags flying and the crowds cheering. Friends, when Christians gather together on Sunday mornings to worship, we are among the unrecognized royalty. But this is no pipe dream. This is no letter from Philadelphia. This is no fraud. Your neighbors would never suspect it. Of course, neither would the folks in the cubicles near to you at work. But you have a line that is traced right back to the great king. And we have it on best authority that one day we will reign alongside of that king. Peter says that believers are a royal priesthood. And in the midst of his great revelation, the apostle John saw believers as a kingdom and as priests. And once you know this, once you know that you are in the lineage of a king who rules on his throne, and you continue to give your allegiance to that king who is on his throne, then just like the story says, our surroundings are the same, but we are different. Happy Easter, everybody. Our Lord and Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the heavenlies, reigns today on his throne. And he does so for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, give us faith and confidence in the ruling, majestic reign of King Jesus. To him be glory and honor. Amen.